When you were a kid, I bet you had a Viewmaster. The device itself is a little plastic goggle-shaped item with two eye holes like binoculars, a button on the right side that you click to turn the wheel, and a little opening on the top to push a reel into. At Satchel's in Gainesville, a great pizza parlor with a unique exterior design and some truly delicious pies, you can check out parts of their menu through a Viewmaster provided by the restaurant. That's the way that Viewmasters exist nowadays. They are unique little parts of our lives, but decades ago, they were more than just that. They were toys, and I bet you had one. I know I did. My collection as a child included scenes from various movies, including Toy Story, but the thing that made the Viewmaster such an interesting toy, at least for me, is that the images appeared to be three-dimensional, with an item in the foreground and the location in the background. It trips your eyes up. It's just a simple lens mechanism, but it doesn't really make sense if you are a kid and it seems like magic is occurring before you. If you were like me, you probably messed around with your Viewmaster a lot, trying to understand how exactly it worked. Well, now, at the ripe old age of 27, I finally decided to put in the effort to learn what exactly the Viewmaster is, how it works, and I'm glad to tell you, it is startlingly simple. Essentially, the Viewmaster is using what's called stereo photography. Stereo has come to be used in multiple different mediums when describing audio coming from two different speakers. It's surround sound, so to speak. So it feels like the audio of a movie or a TV show or music are coming from all around you. It's not just a mono track. It's not just one line of sound. It, it sounds like it's coming from different sources. So, for example, I'm going to show you that this podcast that you're listening to right now technically is in stereo, though we don't really use it very often in stereo. So this sentence right now should be moving around left to right. That is stereo. Got it? So the same principle applies to stereo photography. It's harder to capture in stereo photography. How can an image be coming from two different directions? Well, the idea is the same, that there are two sources of the same thing presented at the same time to present a different image. It's actually more of an optical illusion, and it was very popular in the 19th century. You take two images and you place your two eyes through two separate lenses. Your natural inclination with your brain is to put those images together, thus creating an illusion where it appears that the photograph has more depth to it. It's the same kind of thing that causes magic eye puzzles to be solved, right? Your eyes naturally sort of find patterns and link them up over on top of each other, and that creates this three-dimensional effect. Well, the Viewmaster does that that illusion for you, and it's pretty brilliant. The reel that you're using is usually 14 photos, and those 14 photos are seven pairs. So each photo is on the reel twice, duplicated on the opposite side of the reel. So when you put it into the Viewmaster, your left eye is viewing one photo of the pair, and your right eye is viewing the same image, just on a different part of the reel. So you're actually seeing the same image, but through separate eyes, on separate reels, and your brain is putting them together to create this three-dimensional effect. Voila, a deep picture that's actually two separate images forming the image that you see. It's brilliant, honestly. The original stereoscope came about, as I said, in the 1800s, but the Viewmaster itself didn't come until the 1930s. A few men were involved, 
Harold Graves, and Edwin Mayer, who worked with an organ maker named William Gruber. They combined a few separate ideas on how to develop a new stereoscope idea, primarily focusing on one new development, Kodak color photography. So the old stereographs, they would use images that were often drawn or even just black and white photos. This was meant to be vibrant, colorful, and inviting. So the images that would come together would be different than the ones before, was taking the same idea from the 1800s and putting it into the future. Once the whole idea came together, they brought it to the 1939 New York World's Fair, where it was immediately sold as a new concept for, what else, tourism. Look at these beautiful images in the Viewmaster coming to life before your very eyes. Why don't you come see them for yourself? The same thing as the beautiful color photography and postcards that we've been talking about all season. Viewmasters were used for the same purpose. Interestingly though, the Viewmaster had a brief life as a military item, uh, an object that was used in war, where the United States military used the Viewmaster reels to help, quote, aid with artillery spotting and aircraft identification during World War II, end quote. So if you're looking for a specific type of plane, if you're up in the sky and you're trying to find an enemy aircraft, if you have a Viewmaster that can just tell you what that looks like, well, that solves a lot of problems. It looks three-dimensional, it's in color, right? That is what the Viewmaster was used for. Tens of thousands of versions of the Viewmaster were used for that very purpose. Other than its brief stint as a tool for war, the Viewmaster has spent the ensuing century as marketing material and as a toy, both for locations one should visit and see for themselves, and for movies or TV shows advertised in these stereoscopic styles. Disney produced many of these reels, as I'm sure you know, you probably had some of those in your lifetime, alongside plenty of network TV shows, including Star Trek, my favorite. Today, they're a popular collector's item, sold in our antique stores for those who still prize these reels, even as they've fallen out of popularity due to the internet. If you need a photo, you don't need to grab a reel to pop it into your machine and click to a 3D image of it, you can just Google it, right? Viewmasters have fallen to the wayside. I purchased my own Viewmaster reel, however, from an online vendor who posts beautiful photos of the Viewmaster reels that they collect, and they sold a handful of them a few years back. I don't normally go for that sort of collector's item, it's not really my thing, but I was intrigued by one that I saw. A trio of reels showcasing a museum I have never visited before, the Ringling Museum in Sarasota, Florida. So naturally, on a cold Saturday, I packed up my collection of Viewmaster reels and set for the coast. What I discover? is a museum with an incredible history and a collection of exhibits that took my breath away. The reels sent me on that journey. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the Ringlings, the Circus Museums, the Museum of Art, the wedding I almost crashed, and the people who brought this beautiful museum to life. This is the last episode of our Antique Store series, though not the last episode of the year. You will hear from me next Monday with our annual holiday special, but it has been such a blast getting to do these antique episodes, getting to tell you about the unusual artifacts and items that I have been collecting for the last couple months, and I will absolutely be doing this again very soon, once I have collected some new things to talk about and maybe mistaken a few names and make some assumptions about those first, so it will happen again in the future. It was too fun to not return to. But this week is perhaps the best example of how these antiques have pushed me to look into things I'd never discovered before because I've known about the Ringling Museum, I've known about Sarasota, I've been to Sarasota many times, but I 
for the first time, decided to use these reels and let them be my guide in a sense. Because as I was walking around, I would find things that I saw in the reels and I would take some pictures of the item in my beautiful Kodak photography reel and the actual thing at the museum at the same time. So go to the show's Instagram, WFMPod, to see some of those pictures because it was amazing to know that these Ringling reels were from decades ago and the things that they photographed were still there. So I could see them, certainly, in the Viewmaster, but I did what I was told. I saw them with my own two eyes. So, not only did I get to go, but I also discovered the amazing history of this location. A history we've never talked about on this show before, and I, I feel like it's just the beginning of a new journey for us on this show. This is the joy of finding an antique like this. When I got it, I had no idea where it would lead me, and now this location is an instant favorite of mine. So let's go on a trip. Let's go to Sarasota. I didn't think I was going to make it in time. The museum was closing at 5, and as 3 o'clock approached, I was still an hour out from the museum at all. I had been driving all day up before sunrise to make my way south. It was cold, and when I pulled off the interstate near Lakeland to start making my way along the rural roads that crisscross Highland Country in Florida, the fog had actually rolled in front of me. Not 10 feet in front of me was obscured, and the sun only made brief appearances throughout the morning. It was gray all day. By noon, however, I was all the way on the coast, the smell of the ocean sneaking through my windows as I crossed the bridge onto Sanibel Island. I had promised myself that I would return to this island in December to check up on them for the holiday episode, and that's exactly what I did. I'll share more about that trip next week. It was a delight. I made a new friend. But here's the problem. Sanibel's Causeway is under heavy construction right now. It is being rebuilt after the hurricane, and it took me a long, long time to cross the bridge. It's not happening all the time, but on the weekend I was there, it was one lane road, and it took me a while to get over there. Luckily, it's not happening all the time. So if you pay Sanibel a visit, go get over there when they're not working on the causeway, I suggest. But it had slowed down my day. The sun, of course, sets earlier in the winter, and I had to be getting north to Sarasota. It was starting to feel very dark and I was running out of time. The creeping evening made me very aware that my time was running short. But thanks to some lucky breaks in traffic, I made it to Sarasota with time to spare. I nearly ran to the front lobby of the Ringling, eagerly bursting through the door, paying my admission fee, and diving headfirst into all the museum had to offer. Like I said, it was love at first sight. Because here's the thing, if you've never been to this museum, it's more than just one building with artifacts or art or history inside. It is multiple buildings on a beautiful green property right on the water. Sarasota Bay stretches out to the west and Longboat Key sits on the gulf just across the bay. In the golden hour as I arrived, the trees were shimmering green, the rose garden in the heart of the property was very inviting, and the statues around the property, and there are many statues, they almost glowed in the golden hour light. The first building, right beyond the lobby, to the right, was the Circus Museum, and that is where I was awestruck immediately. Because we haven't talked about this much, and it's something I would really like to talk about in the next couple months and years of this show. Florida has a long and fascinating relationship with the circus. This area of Florida in particular has a very long history. We're going to talk about that today. I've always been a fan of circus history. It's complicated and controversial, and the stories are... So fascinating. They've become so stitched into American folklore, I, I think. There's so many books about magical circuses, and it's, it's just become very, very important to our iconography as a country, I think. And so I've always been really fascinated by circuses. As a horror fan, of course, I'm a fan of a scary clown who isn't, but circuses are so much more than Pennywise, you know? There's so much fascinating history. 
and it's so intriguing. The imagery is so recognizable. So I've always wanted to talk more about it on the show, and this just feels like a great way to start having that conversation. And trust me, there's going to be more. So when I stepped into the museum and found myself surrounded by circus memorabilia, yeah, I was pretty thrilled. And if the name of the museum, the Ringling, and the circus connection sounds familiar, it's exactly what you think. Congratulations, Sherlock Holmes. John Ringling, John Ringling, boy, Ringling is actually a hard name to say, Ringling. You hit that G in the middle, Ringling. Oof, gosh, it's hard to say. Anyway, get ready, I'm gonna say the name a lot. John Ringling, one of the seven sons of the Ringling family, was one of the brothers who helped form the famous Ringling Brothers Circus that would one day buy up the Barnum and Bailey Circus, making them the most popular, the monopolizing circus in America for a period after the turn of the century. Though there were indeed seven Ringling Brothers, only five had any real part in founding the circus. There was Al, the oldest of the seven, then Otto, Alfred, Charles, and John, who was the youngest of the founding brothers. Look up a picture of the five founding brothers of Ringling Brothers Circus, and it looks like the same man who has grown his mustache five different ways. It looks like almost like a progress photo of a guy growing a mustache. One guy's is very thin, one guy's is so big that it's like nearly hanging to his chin. They all look exactly the same. But there is, of course, Al, the guy with the massive mustache that must have made it hard for him to eat soup. It's a completely ridiculous mustache. It's insane. As a person who has a, a slight mustache right now, I look at these guys and I go, that's a bit much, guys. Maybe, maybe change it up a little bit. Anyway, let's talk about John Ringling and how the circus began. The circus as an art form in some form or another has been around as a form of entertainment from horse riding performances all the way back in ancient Rome to jesters of medieval Europe. It's been around in human entertainment for millennia. That's just been a part of our lives. As for the Ringling Brothers, they were born in Wisconsin, a state where so many circus companies began or were based that it became known as the quote, cradle of circuses, end quote. When the Ringling Brothers began, P.T. Barnum was already a massive entertainment figure, even into his 60s. P.T. Barnum, as you probably know, was an extremely important figure in making the circus sort of a mainstream event. The things that became essential to what a circus show was began essentially with P.T. Barnum, though P.T. Barnum's history obviously has become extremely criticized, as it should be. There was some extremely inhumane behavior run under Barnum's circus, and we don't need to get into that today, but P.T. Barnum has become a, a very scrutinized figure in, well, I guess he always was, as he should have been, I believe. Either way, P.T. Barnum was not a young man. It's, it's easy to think of these stories as happening at the same time, but actually Barnum was kind of on the out as Ringling Brothers were on the rise. They, they kind of were ships passing in the night, and you'll see a little bit more why in a moment. Barnum died in 1891, just as the Ringling Brothers were ramping up their own successes. They started simply as a, quote, song and dance troupe in 1882, end quote, until developing into a very simple circus with one elephant by 1888. As the show grew and added more elements to its performances, they created a title to reflect the copious kinds of entertainment under the Ringling's umbrella. Here is what their show was called. The Ringling Brothers United Monster Shows, Great Double Circus, Royal European Menagerie, Museum, Caravan, and Congress of Trained Animals. They liked to keep it brief. They began using the train to transport their vast show. That's just how much they were bringing with them. 
Barnum did die in 1891, but his partner, James Anthony Bailey, as in Barnum and Bailey, he was still alive. The circuses became rivals through the turn of the century, dividing up the country so they were rarely playing in the same markets. But Bailey himself would die in 1906, and Ringling's empire would grow exponentially with the purchase of the remaining bits of Barnum and Bailey. Thus, the near monopoly of the circus industry began. The Ringlings ran both circuses now as separate shows, but their original tent had grown to a massive size alongside the massive show that came from Barnum and Bailey. They were running just unbelievably huge performances, two of them at the same time. So one was playing one market, another was playing the other. Their only circuses in town were run by the same guys. They were running two shows at once, a logistical and financial feat that would soon face rough waters. It's amazing to think of how well they did that for the time that they could, but World War I was on the horizon, and the circus struggled to survive in those days. Many workers had obviously gotten involved in the war effort, and the circus just couldn't make it through the doldrums. So instead of two circuses under one company, they put it all under one big top tent. Thus began Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. That's what it was called when I was a kid. If you grew up and you heard of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey and it sounded like a, a mouthful, that's because it was. And that's because they just took two separate brands and made them one very long brand. That is where it comes from. Two circuses as one. Their personnel, once both companies came together, numbered as such, quote, more than 1,100 people, 735 horses, and almost 1,000 other animals, end quote. They also, quote, traveled in 90 to 100 double-length train cars, end quote. If the circus was coming to town, it would be more than a mysterious tent popping up in the city like in that book, Something Wicked This Way Comes. No, a hundred rail cars would come rattling down the tracks and the circus would take over with hundreds and thousands of people running the show wherever they went and thousands of people would come to see it. The production was massive, colorful, detailed, and filled with sights of all variety. Animals, clowns, dancers, stunts, sideshows, and several rings under that big top, where the audience could sit in the stands and just take in loads of spectacle. That is how the circus got the title that it carried for another century. It's still the title it bears to this day. The greatest show on earth. Inside the pair of buildings containing the Circus Museum at the Ringling Museum today, there are a few main attractions, one of which is an absolutely stunning scale model recreation of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus as it was in the 1920s. It was created by a man named Howard C. Tibbles, who installed it in the museum in 2004. Though it is a recreation of the Ringling Circus, it bears Howard's name, the Howard Brothers Circus. It is unbelievably striking, incredibly detailed, just an entire room behind glass with these beautiful, colorful scale models of the circus. They play sounds as you walk through the examination hallway, the sounds of ringing bells, singing, dancing, bands, people cheering, lions roaring, just a totally immersive experience. I could not believe how much was packed into this miniature. You could stand there for hours just looking at every single detail, finding every single person, and you'd probably still miss some things. What's brilliant is when you step into this hallway, it appears to just be a model train at first of the classic circus trains, and then you turn a corner and the circus is exploding to life before you. I literally stepped in this room and I went, whoa, and there was other people and they were like, yeah, and I was like, I like walked up to some people and was just going, whoa. I was just gasping. <laughs> it's, it was amazing. The The... This wasn't even like an artifact. This is just a recreation of the circus. I can't imagine what it would be like to have seen the circus, but I imagine this puts you 
damn near close to it because it was so beautiful. The only thing that was missing was a, you know, a bag of popcorn. I was immediately enamored. Then, in the next room, there are two giant wagons that were used by the circus, and they shine with color. One wagon was the Calliope wagon, which sang for guests back in the day. I have a photo of it in my Viewmaster reel, so I took a photo of the reel with the Calliope. It appears that the Calliope has been repainted since that reel was created back in the day, but it was nice to see that it was there back then, and it was there today. Beyond that is a room of circus artifacts, clown props, costumes, and even ways to recreate certain circus acts. In the second circus building, not the one with the, the, you know, the model train, there was another one that had this massive, giant room in the back that was filled with vehicles, vehicles from the circus. There was a handful of vehicles, and there were some smaller artifacts as well, some puppets, some art, but really the thing that drew me in was all of these incredible vehicles. One of them, was this massive train car that was used by the Ringling family. It seemed to travel with the circus. Another one was an animal menagerie cage, and there was even the human cannonballs truck with the cannon mounted on the back. One wall, which was probably my favorite part of the exhibit, included a series of headshots of the circus ensemble back in 1929. There are some faces behind makeup, whether that's clown makeup or glamorous makeup. Other faces were greased from work. Some were performers, some were not. They were smiling, some were frowning, they were blank-faced. These people ran this show a century ago. They were the circus. It was nice to see their faces, to look them in the eye. I wonder what they would think of their faces in a museum today. I could have spent all day in the circus museums, but I had a lot to see, and not a lot of time to see it. As I told you, I was running late. So I rushed to the back of the property where I found yet another incredible building, the home of John Ringling, right on the water, a Venetian Mediterranean-style home. This house is named Ka Dizan. Let's talk about that. The first part of it, it's technically two words. The first word is Ka, C. A. The A is a, an accent on it, one of those accents that goes to the left rather than to the right. And then the second word is Dizan. So that is a lowercase d, an apostrophe, a capital Z, A N. Ka Dizan. I might be saying that wrong, but I'm giving it my best shot. <laughs> so apparently in Venetian, Ka Dizan means House of John. So literally John's house, John Ringling. He built it. I don't know. Rich people do weird things. They get weird obsessions. They build entire homes because they visited a place and they liked it so much that they're like, what if my house looked like that? And what if we named it after me, but in their language? So that is what he did. I'm glad he had a good time. Either way, Kadazan is a gorgeous building built in 1926. And it's an extremely interesting picture into the eccentric people that John and his wife, Mabel, really were. You see, John was the last of the Ringling Brothers alive by the 1920s. The circus still thrived in this era. In fact, the circus began consolidating even more circuses under its big top as John bought more and more of the smaller shows and started assimilating them into the Ringling brand that continued to tour the country. So they literally were a monopoly. I mean, if you think of it that a monopoly means that there's one company large enough that there's no one else really competing, Ringling did that. I mean, he kind of already did it when they became Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, but when they started buying other circuses, smaller circuses, there was only one circus in town, and it was the Ringlings. That's it. But change was afoot, and the circus found a new home when John Ringling moved the winter headquarters of the circus down to Sarasota, where he would build Kadazan and make the city his home. But he had been there before. 
By 1927, Sarasota was the circus's home base of sorts. Quote, with Ringling's winter quarters came the trapeze artists, the lion tamers, the tightrope walkers, and the clowns. End quote. This is a topic that uh, we're going to come back to because it's it's too important of a story for me to not talk about. It's been on my big list of important topics to dive into someday about the circus performers that lived in Florida and the legacy that still lasts to this day. That's a story for another day when we can visit the town. It's called Gibsonton. It's the winter home of many sideshow performers from generations back. Look it up. It's beyond fascinating. I have long been obsessed with Gibsonton, and, and one day we'll do a big, deep dive, I promise. But John's connection to Sarasota began long before he moved the Ringling Circus down to Sarasota in 1927. Quote, In 1911, John and Mabel purchased a house called Palms Elysian and 20 acres of land on Sarasota Bay. End quote. Like so many other rich northerners, he and his wife would winter in Florida, and the burgeoning town of Sarasota with its ocean views became their preferred locale. Real estate became their calling card, and apparently at one time they owned, quote, more than 25% of Sarasota's total area, end quote. That's a lot of land. Ever the rich man, however, John didn't settle for buying someone else's mansion. He wanted his own mansion made in his vision. He had an architect named Dwight James Baum. He had him build a 36,000 square foot mansion for $1.5 million and has 56 rooms. Good lord, that's a lot of rooms. It is still striking to this day, with black and white marble checkered floors, orange and gold outer trimmings, red carpets, and massive windows. It's stunning. I have to tell you, I didn't get to go inside, so I can only tell you based on photos, but the next time I go, I will absolutely make it a point to go to Kadazan. Because from the outside, it was beautiful. I can't imagine how breathtaking it is inside. Because there's also paintings of John and his wife Mabel in these elaborate outfits. They clearly fell in love with this over-the-top Venetian style. And they wanted to put it everywhere in their home. The house is still open to be explored alongside the museum that John opened in 1930, the year after his wife Mabel died. Their collection of European art was and still is displayed inside nearly 90 years after John's own death in 1936. They created a home, they created a mansion, clearly they saw the potential of Sarasota, and many historians attribute Sarasota's growth to John and Mabel's focus and investment in the future of this town on the bay. It was after I left Kadazan that I realized that I was in the middle of a very important event on accident. As I trotted toward the art museum where Renaissance and modern art filled the halls, a golf cart whizzed by me, packed to the brim with a wedding party and a bride in a beautiful dress. I gave them a fist-pumping gesture, like, woohoo, meant to indicate congratulations, but they kind of gave me some blank expressions, which indicated to me that I was not perfectly expressing my excitement or congratulations for them. That's on me. Either way, they were cruising toward the same destination that I was. Pretty soon, I would learn that the courtyard at this museum was actually the site of their reception dinner. I popped into the art museum and gladly squeaked through the creaky wooden hallways, staring up at gorgeous old paintings of religious and historical figures, as well as a handful of abstract modern art, which, I'm sorry to tell you, that's some of my favorite art. I love when there's just a painting that's gray and there's some black stripes on it. I see that stuff and I'm like, I love it. But as I rounded the horseshoe of this building, it's kind of shaped like a square horseshoe. The courtyard kind of opens to the back, and so there's one wing to the side, and then there's the lobby, and then there's the other wing on the left. So it makes a horseshoe shape. But as I was making my way through the lobby, I realized that I was not in the company of other museum patrons. The other folks in the lobby were wearing tuxedos and ball gowns. They were dressed to the nines. They looked excellent. 
I was in my flannel backwards cap and squeaky sneakers. I was more than out of place. I was like, uh, sorry, everybody. I tried to pass through quickly, but there was a problem. One section of the museum was closed off. They were doing a modern art installation of some kind in there, and I couldn't reach the other wing that I hadn't gone to without going outside. That area, the outside area, was not only where the reception dinner was actively being set up, but also the wedding party was outside taking their pictures. But I had to see the other part of the museum, didn't I? Ever the completionist, I could not give up. So I ran outside. I did that halfway tiptoeing thing. I looked like I was I was in Scooby-Doo. I was like, oops, sorry, excuse me. Just gonna squeak by here. And I made my way around and arrived to the empty hallways of the museum. I hope that the bridal party didn't even notice me, but if if there is a picture of my flanneled body sneaking around trying to enjoy the art museum, that would fill my heart with extreme gladness. So basically, I got to enjoy the rest of the museum alone. It was just me and some security guards who I did not see one of them, and he, he scared the hell out of me. He surprised me, but it was wonderful. I, I was having a wonderful time. The reception outside was stunning, and I was a bit jealous, but it was time to go. The museum was getting ready to close. The security guard warned me they're about to close up shop, and I didn't want to be a pain in the neck. So I headed out, enjoying what I saw. As I left, I took in the sights of this beautiful reception, as well as the statue of Michelangelo's David. Well, obviously, it's not the original version of Michelangelo's David. It's a beautiful recreation that's made of some black stone, and it really stands out amongst the other statues in this area that are gleaming white. This black statue of David, it's stunning and distinct, and I loved it. It actually was meant to be something very specific back in the day, or at least that's how John Ringling envisioned it. That statue was meant to be above a tomb that held John and Mabel after their deaths. It was meant to be ornate, elaborate, and placed them in the heart of this museum, a celebration of all that they had created in their lives after their deaths. But instead, John, Mabel, and John's sister, Ida, are buried in a quiet plot actually next to Kadazan, overlooking the waters of Sarasota Bay. Let the recreation of the statue of David be his own marvel. John and Mabel, they enjoy Sarasota Bay to this very day. In the years after John died, this property where the Ringling Museum still stands continued to grow. The Circus Museum opened in 1946 with all of the artifacts donated from the families of the circus performers themselves. A theater was built nearby, the Asolo, which I was unable to visit on this trip, but we'll have to stop by there another day. And now the museum and the theater are run by Florida State University. I'm pretty amazed by the depth of art in all forms displayed here, whether it's historic circus props and costumes and the incredible scale model, or the Renaissance art lining the walls of the museum, or even the remarkable architecture of John Ringling's unusual home, or the theater across the parking lot. They all still stand by Sarasota Bay, just as John hoped they would over a century ago. But what about the circus? What happened to the Ringling brothers? John Ringling North, the original John Ringling's nephew, took over the circus business after Ringling died. But the 1950s were looking ugly for the greatest show on earth. Layoffs and downsizing followed, and the train car had dropped from 100 to only about 15. Even Sarasota was no longer the winter home of the circus. What had once been the home of these unique artists had fallen to an increasingly low population. The land was sold to Sarasota County, and the circus itself gave its final performance as a big-top circus in July of 1956. 
By 1959, the Ringling Brothers' winter headquarters had been moved from Sarasota down south to Venice, Florida. An interesting connection to John Ringling's Venetian obsession, but no longer the town he called home. Nearly a decade passed, with the circus as an indoor performance instead of under a tent, and in 1967, the Feld family bought the circus from the Ringling Brothers, the same name that runs the circus to this day. Because here's the thing. The circus still exists. I didn't know this. Bet you didn't either. And this is not an ad, but it caught my attention. You see, I'm sure you remember this. In 2017, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, they closed. It was driven by an outcry against the treatment of animals in their shows. There's elephants, tigers, and others. So... There was a public outcry. These creatures should not be in the show. So in 2016, they stopped using elephants. And in 2017, Ringling Brothers shut down. It's been six years since then. But the circus has changed a lot over the last few centuries. There weren't sideshows by the time it was still going in 2017, right? The Ringling Brothers now are back on the road. No animals involved. The circus is back, and in the first week of 2024, they will be returning to the Gulf Coast and do their show in the Amelie Arena in Tampa, which to me is just a fascinating full circle moment, bringing Ringling back to the Gulf of Mexico. The fingerprints of the Ringling legacy never really went away, especially not in Florida. Their name, their artifacts, even their big top live on. Their impact on Florida is something we are just now unpacking on this show, and it goes so much deeper than just one Ringling Brother. It is a big story. But now, the circus is back, returning to Florida a century later. Even though it has vastly changed since the days of John Ringling and his brothers, what else did you expect? The greatest show on earth must go on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. Thank you for listening to this entire season. It has been an honor to get to tell these fascinating stories and peaks of our history through our antiques. If you enjoy the show, if this is your first episode, welcome. We're glad to have you. Thanks for listening. It means a lot to me, truly, to get to tell you about the adventures and the incredible things that I'm just fascinated by. I love getting to share them with you. So thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or go follow the show on WFM Pod on Instagram. I post things there all the time. There's some photos from throughout this season. There will be some photos of my trip to the Ringling Museum. Go check it out. Or you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I didn't get to speak to anybody specifically from the Ringling Museum, though I hope to amend that for my next visit, but I will include a link anyway to their website so you can go and check it out. It's an amazing place. I was in love. This isn't an ad. Truly, I'm not paid to say any of these things. I fell in love with this museum. It is possibly one of the most fascinating, beautiful museums I've ever gotten to see. If you get a chance to go over there, I highly recommend it. It is a great trip. You can see a lot of stuff and it will be even more impressive than I am describing it as, especially if you're a fan of circuses as I am. So go check them out. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, that is it for me this week. Next week is the last episode of 2023. We will see you in 2024 after that, but I can't let you go without the Wait 5 Minutes holiday special. Is it the 4th? 19, 20, 21, 22, fifth the fourth the fifth i'll tell you next week but i am so glad to get to tell you these stories i've got some guests from throughout the year who are going to come and tell you some really great stories i'm very excited to have them back so there will be 
a new episode next Monday, the last episode of 2023, the Wait 5 Minutes Holiday Special. Until then, happy Hanukkah. Have a very happy week. I will see you next Monday for our holiday special. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and go Gator and muddy the water. Have a great week, and again, happy Hanukkah. See you next Monday.